my name is James Van Dyke. For those of you who don't know, uh, my wife and I, Anna, we've been here for about nine years, uh, Bethel downtown, and we have two kids, Laurel and Vincent. Uh, Laurel's waving. <laughs> and uh, we love this church. We love serving alongside all of you, and we love this body of Christ. So Eric called me to preach about two years ago, and uh, I, I said no. <laughs> and I think I told him, you know, life is busy. It would be hard for Anna. Uh, I had a good excuse. Uh, but it, when he called a few weeks ago, uh, I said, are you sure you want me up on stage? And he said, in his best Rafiki voice from The Lion King, it is time. And so I, I could not deny Rafiki, and so here I am. Uh, he, he said, do you want to cover uh, a psalm, or do you want to cover something else? And I said, you know, something else is too big. I, I'm going to stick to a psalm. And the first thing that came to mind is Psalm 31. And it's a psalm that over the years I've, you know, re returned to and really gone to. Um, and, and really, I, I love this psalm. But it's kind of funny it's kind of simple and base, the reasons that I initially was drawn to it. And that is simply, I like rocks. Uh, <laughs> I like them under a microscope. I like to study them. I like to climb them. Uh, you know, where there's rocks, I'm, I'm happy. It's a good place. So I grew up in central Texas, close to a river, and I'd find myself uh, in the evenings and in the summers, find myself climbing rocks. And uh, you know, it, it wasn't too long before my parents realized what we were doing, making our own harnesses and, and using boat dock rope. And uh, we, we kind of took refuge, if you will, at least from the summer heat, uh, in the shade of these rocks. So um, when, when Eric, when I told him what I was preaching on, he said, uh, do you want to rappel in from the, from the beams? I was like, yes, I do. He said, yeah, insurance is not going to allow that. So, so here we are. In Psalm 31, let's pray again, and we'll get into it. Father, you are good, and your word is good. We thank you that you allow us uh, the knowledge of the future, uh, that you have provided a way for us to commune with you. And we ask that in this time today that we would better understand uh, who we are and whose we are, uh, by this scripture. Uh, Father, put down any distractions, and uh, Lord, I just ask that this be uh, your word. We love you. Amen. Okay, so we're here in Psalm 31. Um, just so you know, I'm going to hold on to these notes pretty tight. Uh, I'm, I'm not like Eric. You can relay the whole Bible uh, by memory. So we're in Psalm 31. Uh, it's a psalm of David because it says the psalm of David. Uh, yeah, that was pretty easy for me. That was nice. Uh, yeah, thank you. So psalm, uh, David lived about 70 years, uh, around B.C. 1000. And uh, we don't really know the circumstances that surrounded David uh, when he wrote this psalm. Uh, David went through a lot of challenging times, uh, and he was pursued a lot. Uh, he had a lot of enemies. 
And so he was in situations like this pretty often. Uh, so it's not, it's not a foreign uh, concept. But I think it's important for us to understand the context of what he is writing in, not exactly what he was going through, but the context uh, of the big picture. So I'm going to go back a little bit before David, by a little bit. So in the beginning, <laughs> God. God created the heaven and the earth and the universe and all that is in it out of nothing. In Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, thus imago Dei. Man is made in God's image and communion between the creator and the created was perfect. In fact, man is installed as royal priests. That is God's blessing. But man broke the perfect communion and was exiled from the garden with, with God and lost his title, his and her title as royal priests. When deceived by the serpent in attempt at exalting himself above or outside of God's intended construct, God hates sin. God promises that a future descendant will come and defeat the deceiver by striking his head, but giving up his own life. The descendant would be a priest king and would restore the original communion between God and man. Violence and corruption was born, and it wasn't very long before it got so bad that eventually God informed a man named Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth and all life upon it. But God also said to Noah, I will establish a covenant with you, and I will deliver you and your family. God directed Noah to build an ark, the vessel that was a physical deliverance from the righteousness of God. So once Noah's family was delivered, the shine did not last long. In fact, not even days following God's deliverance of Noah and his family, Noah hits the restart on the spiritual spiral. Mankind settles for what feels good instead of seeking communion with God because we know that he is good. So God eventually finds, as Eric likes to call him, uh, a moon-worshiping pagan, he finds Abram, and upon renaming him, God strikes uh, a covenant with Abraham that he will be a father of a great nation and a multitude of descendants that would be a royal priesthood. This got off to a slow start by man's metrics. And when Abraham was asked by God to provide an offering to cover Abraham's sin with the sacrifice of his only son, Abraham and Isaac took faith, the faithful and seemingly fateful journey and, and hike up Mount Moriah. But God provided a substitute. They were delivered from the righteousness of God. Then God reinstalled a royal priesthood in the family of Abraham or the nation of Israel. I promise to make a nation of Israel a nation of priests. So Israelites or the Hebrews ended up in slavery under the Egyptians. So we then fast forward to a baby floating down a river because the Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, where God's people were being held as slaves, began fearing the number of the Israelites. So, but God, 
delivered Moses out of the water and into a life where he would lead God's people out of slavery and broker the deliverance of God's people. The deliverance of God, the deliverance of God's people was slow by man's metric. Once delivered, apparently the Israelites thought it was a race against Noah's debauchery record to resume the spiritual spiral which broke communion with God and his royal priest. <coughs> Excuse me. Without getting into the iterations of Moses' hikes and chats with the Almighty, the people's sin upset God because God hates sin. It is what separates his people from him. Moses offers himself as a sacrifice to God for the sin of his people. What does God do? God provides a substitute. God delivers Moses from his righteousness. Eventually, the people of Israel uh, get to a land they can call their own. This was also a slow process by man's metrics. And then God's chosen people wanted a king. God gave them a king and Saul, who showed himself to be self-centered and ultimately strayed from leading God's people courageously. Then there was David. He was forgotten by his own father when Samuel uh, went to Jesse and said, hey, I want to see all your sons. One of them is going to be the king. And so he lined up all his sons, and David was completely forgotten. And so his name didn't even come up. Spoiler alert, <laughs> we're, we're reading King David's text. Uh, an unoppressive, or unoppressive to man, but possessing a heart to please the Lord from an early age. But we, we do have to remember, David was a shepherd boy, a spunky little cuss. Along came Goliath, looking for a fuss. We all know that part of the story of David's life. David refused to shrink to the fears in front of him because he remembered God's future promise of deliverance, that peace will be established in their given land. David was installed as king, but not before he was on the run as the anointed king for around 15 years. This was a slow process by man's metrics. Once king, David goes up in the highest hills of the tribes of Israel, and he decides to establish the capital city there. This is called Jerusalem, or Zion, city of David. One might say a, a refuge or a new Eden. This is the very same hilltop Abraham met Melchizedek, and where God provided a substitution sacrifice for Isaac. Interesting. I'm picking up on a pattern so God said of David in 1 Samuel 13, David was a man after God's own heart, and David took pleasing the Lord very seriously. His rule as king was a mixed bag. At one point, David finally brings the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, back to God's land after being taken away from an enemy. And uh, this was the very presence of God. This was the dwelling place of God. And David was obsessed with the dwelling place of God. Of God because he knew the presence of God delivered him. Uh, later, uh, as a part of the mixed bag, later in David's reign, uh, he offended God, his disobedience offended God, and uh, God was not happy with him or his people. And so David offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of the people 
Uh, and, and what did God do? But God, he provided a substitute. God forms yet another covenant with David, saying he will make one of David's descendants ruler at the right hand of God for eternity. So here we are. This is David, and this is, in my opinion, how we can best evaluate the heart of David and really what's on the line. Because David is looking at things with a bigger picture uh, and a picture, um, at least a compass that's focused on God, but also uh, while on this earth, uh, in the mire and in the challenges of the day. So we get the privilege of getting into David's heart and the depths of them in this psalm. So this psalm here, 31, is categorized as a psalm of thanks, a psalm of prayer, uh, specifically a lament, and then also a, a psalm of comfort. And as stated before, we don't know the circumstances that were specifically around David in this psalm. There's people who, theologians who think there's, um, you know, certain events that they can tie these to, but we don't know exactly. Uh, but we do know that there were numerous times in David's life where he was being pursued by enemies and seeking refuge and rest. So he's either seeking, David is either seeking rest or refuge in the Lord or he's seeking it somewhere else. That can pretty much sum up David's life and pretty much sum up our own lives. So here we go. We're going to get in the text. So verse 1, we have, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. So when, you, when I read the word refuge, I think, what, what really, what implications does that have? And what I came up with is, you know, a place where we go to receive comfort, rest, resolve, even maybe to the point of identity. And I think this is true of, of David. And so you, also you have to think when, when, he, when he says, uh, and you, do I take refuge? You have to think, what's the alternate option? Uh, what else could he be doing if he's not taking refuge in, in God? And so we often should ask ourselves the same thing. Are we finding rest and comfort and resolve and identity in places other than uh, our creator? And so we go on to verse 2, and we go on uh, to the end of verse 1. It says, let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Actually, I'm going to read through verse 5. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So there's a lot there. And I think as we read this, uh, we see that David is both boldly declaring uh, truths of God uh, but also leaning fully on God and who God is. So when I was reading this, I, I thought this is kind of a desperate confidence and one that he's both confident in the Lord, but he's desperate in his times. So his profession and confession of hope in the creator 
God is driven by a rightful alignment of his heart in the midst of dire circumstances. And so at the end of verse 1, very interesting bit. So back in the 1500s in Wittenberg, Germany, or Wittenberg, uh, there was a, a monk at a monastery, and he was teaching through the Psalms, and he got to Psalm 31, and he was frustrated by it. He said, this, this doesn't really make sense. He said, how can the righteousness of God deliver me? The righteousness of God can only condemn me to hell. And so it was weeks later after Martin Luther, who was the monk, uh, was praying and reading Romans 1.17 uh, that he realized. So Romans 1.17, for in it, it being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Boom. Luther's light bulb went off. He realized that, <clears throat> excuse me, he realized that the righteousness that we receive and are delivered by is imputed through us through Christ alone. It is so good. So our deliverance is God's desire and requires faith on our part that he is sufficient. When I recognize my failure in comparison to his righteousness, his deliverance produces fruit of faith in my life. So one thing that this is not is um, try really hard to have good faith so that God will select you and deliver you. Uh, rather, we get to realize that we have nothing to offer and need deliverance and because of that, and because of clinging to our creator, we get to have faith that is the fruit of uh, our need for God. Uh, so verse 2, in fact, perfect lead-in, verse 2, it says, Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. When, when I read this, I think of someone on, their, on a sickbed or a deathbed, someone who can't even conjure up enough volume to be able to get out their, their request, their, their cry. They actually need someone to physically uh, reach down or lean down so that their request can be made known. And this is how David feels, uh, and, it's a, and it's a good feeling. Well, it's not a good feeling for him, but it's a good place to be. <clears throat> so then we go to verse 3 where he says, for you are my rock and my fortress. So you kind of get whiplashed a little bit throughout all of Psalm 31, where, where David is uh, going from God, you are this, to God, be this. And God, I, I am this, and it's terrible. But will you be this? And so you, you kind of see that there's, there's a dynamic going on that's almost as if there's an effortful approach on David's part to teach himself and also reveal himself to the Father uh, and reveal himself to himself. Um, so we'll get to that later. So in, in 4, take me out of the net. Uh, they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. So again, this language of, of refuge, of uh, appropriating a, uh, 
a place where, where we can go when, we, when we're in need. And he is aligning himself with his refuge as God. And then he says, into your hand I commit my spirit. Many of you probably perked up uh, when Molly read that uh, and that those were the last words of Christ on the cross, on the cross to the Father. And <laughs> having to uh, put an understanding behind that is, is pretty weighty and difficult. But uh, simply, you know, these, this is the ultimate and final commitment of oneself to the Father. And this was for, for Christ and uh, also for Peter and, and many others. And we'll get back to that in a little bit as well. So then in verse 6, he, he kind of flips again and says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in you, but I trust in the Lord. So it's kind of harsh what he's saying, that he hates those um, who pay regard to worthless idols. But I think this is part of David's alignment with God, who hates sin. David hates those who are willingly living in sin, and choose to pay regard or find a sense of belonging or comfort away from the comfort that he provides, the one that is the true comforter. <clears throat> so we know that in the meta narrative that we talked about, the big picture story of God and man, that God's desire is reconciliation with man. Uh, but he can have no part in sin. And so David is aligning his heart with God's heart. They can have no part of sin, though once all reconciled. <clears throat> so going into, into verse 7 and 8, it says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Again, we have to remember David was a shepherd boy, a spunky little cuss, that uh, this language kind of refers to, um, you know, a shepherd scene, that uh, there's open pasture. Um, set my feet on a broad place. So this is kind of the depiction of uh, having plenty to eat, plenty to drink, uh, a large area that you're able to see predators from far off, so you're able to prepare for a defense. And so this is, um, this is how David depicts his relationship with the Lord, where, where he uh, knows the Lord has from experience uh, and will deliver him to. And then here we are in verse 9. So verses 9 through 13 um, they, they get pretty deep and raw and dark. And I think they're good verses for us to read and associate with because I think we all can, uh, at least at a certain point in time. Uh, if it's not today, uh, just wait. As Eric says, it's cheer up, it's worse off than you think. Uh, but we, uh, we find ourselves in nine where it says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And then he says in 11, I've become a reproach 
And in 12, I've been forgotten like one who's dead. In 13, and whispering a tear on every side. So this is a deep uh, and real assessment of David's heart and an account by him to God about himself. And I think sometimes God wants us uh, to get to a place where, where we say, uh, this situation is unfixable if God, uh, unless God acts on it. And uh, it's a vulnerable place to be, uh, a place where if, if God doesn't act, I'm powerless in my situation to achieve an outcome that is good for me. And there have been times in my life where I get to this point and I think, do I just need to try harder? Maybe sometimes, but most of the times, no. But what I do need to do is open my heart to God and to teach myself truths about him. So then we get to 14. And I think that's what David is doing. He says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. So he's reflecting back to uh, the many times where God had already delivered him out of a trouble. And, you know, David is living and leaning uh, into this theology that we talked about before to set the stage. And that's the, but God. We were desperate. We were needy. There was no hope outside of ourselves but God. And so this is throughout this whole 31 psalm. And the way I like to think of it is the answer is peppered throughout the question. Because like we well know, we're, we are already, but not yet. We are living, <coughs> excuse me, living in the tension of our future reality, but in the present calamity. <coughs> and this is a hard place to be but it's also a hopeful place. And so in, in 14, he goes on and commits. He says, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. And from 16 on to about 22, uh, he recounts some specific uh, challenges and uh, goes back and forth with God or goes, goes to God and um, kind of throughout Pepper's um, theology about God and says, you are this for me or be this for me. Uh, I'm having this problem. Do not let uh, me, me be um, let's see, in the cover of your presence you hide me from the plots of man. You store up in the shelter from the strife of tongues. In 21, blessed be the Lord for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love for me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for the mercy when I cried out for your help. So in this psalm, it's interesting how it starts out with David proclaiming who God is and then kind of saying, oh, and, and also this is who I am. And God, are you this? God, please be this. So this, this, it's this dynamic throughout the whole thing. And then the very end, we get to Psalm uh, 31, 23, and 24. And 
David says, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So David, early on, was in the process of aligning himself with who he was uh, in view of who God is, and therefore whose he is. And uh, in doing that, he was able to have the truth reminded to him enough to where he could actually proclaim to others. So 23 and 24 is more of a corporate proclamation about God and an encouragement to the saints, uh, which is a beautiful thing if you think about it, that he was just, you know, a few minutes before in, in the depths, in the mire and in the pit, and then he turns around and he says, be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So, to tie together the, the, the big story, uh, righteousness in the Old Testament is an unmovable standard. Now, David is looking forward to Christ's fulfillment by showing righteousness as a means of deliverance and not simply a standard that cannot be met. So here are a couple of points of application uh, for us today that I think we can derive uh, from the text. Uh, and the first one is practice alignment with God in a transparent way. And kind of the, the subtitle of that is he already knows your heart. So I think of uh, 1 John 1, 9, which says, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So I think one of the first parts in aligning ourselves with God is knowing and confessing uh, what we know of God, both to ourselves and to God. And then the second is, Aligning by knowing ourselves, knowing and confessing ourselves to ourselves and to God. Because God already knows what's on our minds, what's in our hearts. And so when we take it to him, we're declaring that he is all-knowing and all-caring. So we can, we can have uh, emotional insecurity and profess our struggles. God wants that. Uh, at no point in time did God say uh, he wanted us to polish or exempt, you know, refine our problems before taking it to him uh, in no way. In fact, we have to be reminded David is a man after God's own heart, and you can see it throughout 31 and, of course, throughout the Psalms where, you know, he lays it out, uh, and God loves that. But one thing to remember as we practice alignment is come back to reciting the truths that we do know about God, this helps the process. This helps the process of us aligning with God. And then, second point of application is check your refuge. Make sure it's strong. Uh, if we turn to something that's created, it could be a good thing, and it could be something that that God, you know, wants us to enjoy. But if we put our hope in our identity, and our faith, and our trust in it, whether it be money 
or uh, jobs or uh, drinks or food or whatever it might be, uh, those might be good things, but they are not and should not be our refuge. When we're in time of need, uh, we have the one true refuge uh, waiting and wanting us to join him. Uh, and then third, uh, wait well. And this is, this is hard because uh, waiting, no one likes to wait, especially when uh, the circumstances around waiting are, are hard. And it's easy to say they're hard, but when you're in it and they're hard, it's, it's hard. Uh, so be strong outside of shame and fear and hiding because we always tend towards self-protection. Uh, God wants us to, one, one mark of waiting well is an active pursuit at aligning ourselves to the one who is worthy uh, for us to wait for. So with that in close, God's promises that a future descendant would come, a better Adam, a better Noah, a better David, and defeat the deceiver by giving up his own life, providing for us not only a physical deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance, rendering God's righteousness no longer a vessel of condemnation that we are saved from, but a vessel of deliverance we are saved by. Through the perfect life and death of the ultimate sacrifice. So God's deliverance for his people out of bondage took over 300 years. God's chosen land and for his people to assume that land took hundreds of years. David was anointed as king and didn't take his throne for, you know, over a decade. These are long-awaited blessings by man's metric. Christ is coming back to resume his reign on earth, living, live in the blessing of communion with him now through the Spirit. Wait well. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. And we thank you that you love us and pursue us, and Lord, that you uh, provide deliverance through your righteousness that's imputed to us through Christ. Father, I just ask that you help us better understand that, and Lord, that we would uh, wait well. We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.